Well, hey there, everyone. Good evening. Great to be with you this evening as we look at this uh, all-important passage. And afterwards, we'll have a quick question time. So if you've got any questions throughout what I'm saying, do feel free to write them down um, and stick your hand up afterwards. Now, one of my favorite uh, kind of historical little gems is an interaction between John Wesley. He was uh, an Anglican minister a couple of hundred years ago, so you know he was cool. And, and one of his brother's doctors, okay, this doctor had watched a number of Wesley's people, Wesley's followers, he was very influential, um, a number of Wesley's followers die. And the doctor said, most people die for fear of dying, but I never met with people such as yours. They are none of them afraid of death, but are calm and patient and resigned to the last. And John Wesley responded, our people die well. I've always loved that line. It's a wonderful testimony, isn't it, to the confidence that they had in the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the face of death. Paul says, for us, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, one of the verses I find most striking in this passage is verse 39. You see, when Jesus died, there was a centurion standing opposite him, a man, I suppose, who had seen hundreds, maybe even thousands of other men die. But none of them died quite like this man. When the centurion saw the way Jesus died, he said, this man really was God's son. What is it about the way that Jesus died that brought him to this conclusion? What is it about the way Jesus died that convinced this centurion, this hardened soldier, that he was the son of God? For the Jews, the Son of God was a massive, significant title from the Old Testament, okay, which refers to God's chosen king, God's representative on earth, invested with his authority. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah, the Son of God, to come in the line of the great King David, who would rule over God's people forever in God's kingdom. For a Roman centurion, what he says is treasonous. The Roman emperors called themselves sons of God, and they wouldn't bear any rivals. What is it about the way Jesus died that convinced this hardened soldier that he was special, that he, and not the emperor, was God's son? Well, my aim this evening is fairly simple. My hope is that as we look for ourselves at the way Jesus died, that we will come away with the same conviction uh, that this centurion had. Perhaps a new conviction, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And and that changes everything. If we understand what it means that Jesus is the Son of God, and that his death was not a a tragic accident, uh, but rather an integral step in God's plan to establish his kingdom, then it means we will think about everything differently. Religion. Not a matter of opinion, but a question of reality. Uh, No matter what culture, creed, or color... Everyone must admit that Jesus is the one true king and they must submit to him. Career. Is my life about social climbing, building a reputation and leaving a legacy? Or is it about testifying to Jesus' legacy? Because you can't have both. If you follow King Jesus, the world will hate you. Hobbies. Houses. Holidays. In light of Jesus' kingship, all of these things become so insignificant, don't they? 
the things that captivate our contemporaries. If Jesus is king and I'm going to live in his kingdom forever, it's not that important whether I've got the latest games or gadgets. If Jesus is king and I'm going to live in his kingdom forever, it's not that important whether I've got a fancy house here. If Jesus is king and I'm going to live in his kingdom forever, it's not that important whether I see Europe or India or America. And what I pour my life into and what I celebrate and what I revel in and talk about will not be those things, but will be King Jesus and his kingdom. So let's dive into the passage and see if we can see what that centurion saw that day. The passage basically divides into four sections. If you've got an outline in front of you, hopefully you can see that I've listed them there. First of all, in verses 16 to 20, Jesus is forced to endure a mock coronation. Surrounded by hundreds of Roman soldiers, I take it the centurion of verse 39 was there. In fact, I suppose he was in charge. The soldiers dressed Jesus in a purple robe, symbolizing royalty, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They got down on their knees and paid homage to him. But all the while they kept hitting him on the head with a reed and spitting on him. So far, of course, none of them really thought he was the son of God. And yet, for us, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, this scene ought to be no surprise to us. Several times in the previous chapters, we've seen Jesus tell his disciples in great detail that all of this would take place. In chapter 10, verse 33, if you've got a Bible in front of you, just flick back a few pages. Chapter 10, verse 33, look at what Jesus says to his disciples. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. Jesus has been handed over to the Romans, and everything's going according to plan. Everything's happening just as Jesus foretold. Jesus' supremacy over all of history and all of creation is unmistakably demonstrated by his crystal clear knowledge of the future, isn't it? And yet these soldiers mock him as a, as a pretender. Jesus deserves a much more splendid crown upon his head, a much more illustrious robe. Jesus deserves our homage and submission. And yet here it's all done in jest. When they finished with him, they strip him of his purple robe, put his own clothes back on him, and lead him out to crucify him. They force a man uh, called Simon to carry his cross to Skull Place. Jesus has clearly been beaten so badly that he's unable to lift it himself. Simon is from Cyrene in North Africa. I learned that from Total War. Uh, perhaps this guy was just... It's a computer game, doesn't matter. Perhaps this guy was just passing through. He clearly has nothing to do with anything. But these soldiers have no problem mistreating an innocent person. It's interesting that in verse 21, Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus, are mentioned. Evidently, these men were well known. Uh, to Mark's readers, perhaps they had become Christians. The mixed wine in verse 23 would have deadened the pain Jesus had to endure, but he refused to take it. This is what he had come for, remember. He had come to bear our pain. He would not be numbed to it now. Having stripped him again of his clothes, they cast lots for them, uh, barely more civilized than hyenas, 
like scavengers. They gambled over Jesus' garments. Crucifixion was designed to humiliate its victims as much as possible. So they were usually uh, strung up completely naked. None of this kind of, you know, little towels or anything to sanitize it for us. And so they gamble over Jesus' uh, one remaining possession. Now, the rest of the passage is marked out by time signatures at the beginning of each section. So in verse 25, Mark tells us it was nine in the morning. At nine o'clock in the morning, what happened? Uh, probably fri- uh, fr- It's a Friday morning, probably Friday the 3rd of April, AD 33. Jesus was nailed to a cross and an inscription was put above his head, the King of the Jews. This sign was meant to indicate the crime for which he was being punished. That was common practice. What is his crime? He claimed to be the king of the Jews. Except the sign doesn't say that, does it? Every person who passed by read that sign and it screams the truth loud and clear. It just says that the one hanging there is the king of the Jews. Just imagine the scene, right? The rest of this section shows gathered around Jesus three groups of people, all of them behaving in in exactly the same way. They all mocked him and insulted him. And yet all the while, as if in neon lights, there's a sign above his head that says the king of the Jews. Staring them in the face is the truth of the matter. As clear as day, the one they were crucifying was in fact the long-awaited king of the Jews, the Messiah. The passers-by yelled insults at him and shook their heads. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him to one another. And in verse 32, even those who were crucified with him were taunting him. And that's pretty low, isn't it? The passers-by were saying, Ha! The one who would demolish the sanctuary and build it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. The irony is, of course, if you were here last week, that their accusation is false. Jesus had never said he would demolish the temple. Quite the opposite. He had foretold that they would demolish the temple and that he would rebuild it in three days. And the temple he was speaking about was his body where God and man meet. So in fact, what they are doing right now is destroying the temple he was talking about. Their own words condemn them. The chief priests in verse 31 He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Jesus was famous for saving others. Uh, Throughout his ministry, that's what he'd been doing. That's why the crowds were coming to him. But now he can't save himself. What a joke. But what these priests don't understand is that in order to save others, Jesus had to sacrifice himself. The irony is, of course, that of all of the people who should have got it, you'd think the priests would understand how a sacrifice works. Their job in the temple day after day was to sacrifice bulls and goats and doves and so on to pay for the sins of the people. Uh, It's called penal substitutionary atonement. I want you to know this phrase. I know it's big and sounds all jargony, but you need to know it. Penal. The bull takes the penalty. Penalty. Substitutionary. The bull takes the penalty in our place. Atonement. The bull takes the penalty in our place so that we can be brought back into a harmonious relationship with God. That is the core of everything we believe. 
about Jesus, that he took the penalty in our place so that we can be brought back into a harmonious relationship with God. No one else has done that, and that's why he is our only hope. That's what Jesus is doing as he hangs on the cross. All the bulls and goats that they sacrificed in the temple day after day were meant to teach them about this very moment that they're watching when their king would die on their behalf. If he had saved himself, he could not have saved us. But they mock. In verse 33, Mark gives us another time signature, so we're into the next section. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. All right, I want to point out four things about this section. Number one, the darkness. The darkness is obviously supernatural. The sun goes dark in the middle of the day and it lasts for three hours. That's not a normal eclipse, is it? The significance of the darkness, though, is rooted in the Old Testament. Fundamentally, it's a sign of God's judgment and the end of the world. It's a sign that God is angry with sin and he is going to punish it. In Exodus chapter 10, right, the ninth plague, you know, Moses and the ten plagues, and you know, you've seen the Prince of Egypt. Um, the ninth plague, just before the death of the firstborn son, a thick darkness covers the whole land for three days. In Joel chapter 2, the day of the Lord is described as a day of horror. The earth quakes before them, the sky shakes, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars cease their shining. The Bible is not shy about the fact that God is angry with sinners and that he will judge the world. And no wonder. Why would anyone have any respect for a God who is not angered by the kind of behavior that we're witnessing in this chapter? But the wonder of this chapter is that while God's anger is displayed in the thick darkness, at the same time, his love is displayed. So look at verse 34. Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we should be asking the same question. Not for ourselves, you know, not about ourselves. I mean, I know why God would give up on me. I know why he would hand me over to the mob to suffer and die, because I deserve it. But why would God forsake his own beloved perfect son because this was the plan all along this was their plan all along to save sinners like you and me by dying in our place now what jesus says in verse 34 is actually also a quote from psalm 22 so i want us to head back to psalm 22 together uh, if you don't have a bible on you look over the shoulder of the person next to you psalm 22 so it's really important. Jesus quotes from this psalm 
It's written by King David. And so in many ways, I'm on page 495 if you've got a church Bible. 495. In many ways, this psalm is there to teach the people of Israel what to expect when their Messiah comes, you see. As you learn about King David, you're meant to be learning about the coming future king who's going to far, out, you know, far surpass King David. And so just quickly look with me at how this psalm specifically foreshadows Jesus' experience on the cross. First of all, on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God. The psalm begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there you have the quote. But now jump down to verse 6. Listen to how the psalmist describes himself. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. It's exactly how Jesus is being treated, isn't it? God became man. More than that, God became a worm for us. Jesus was mocked by everyone around him, treated like dirt. They sneered at him and shook their heads and taunted him. Thirdly, check out verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus' hands and feet were pierced with nails. And fourthly and finally, look at verse 18. He goes on, I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. We've just read about how the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothing. This psalm was written about a thousand years before Jesus, well before crucifixion was even invented, but it foretells with extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary detail the events surrounding his death. The point is that Jesus is the long-awaited king, the son of God. At the end of the psalm, there is a dramatic turnaround. The psalmist begins to sing God's praises for rescuing him. And in verse 27, he says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. You see, in the end, the psalm celebrates the establishment of God's rule after this suffering. God's kingdom is going to cover the whole earth. And that's exactly what Jesus knows will happen. But we'll have to wait till next week. Uh, go back to Mark 15 then. Thirdly, notice that in verse 38, at the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that tell you? It tells you the temple has effectively been destroyed. Uh, the temple was meant to symbolize God's presence with his people, that he dwelt among them. But it also symbolized God's separation from his people, that because of their sin, he was off limits. He was in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place at the very center of the temple. In that room, God's shining presence appeared over the Ark of the Covenant. And this thick curtain was to separate that room off from the rest of the temple, to separate that room off from the rest of the world. It was to symbolize that this was a no-go zone. It was about 60 feet high, 
and four inches wide. And it was torn in two, not by men from bottom to top. Nothing we could ever do would tear that curtain. Not by men, but by God from top to bottom. Because God himself tore open the way for us to come to him. As Jesus' body was broken, the temple was destroyed. And so, fourthly, we come to verse 39. Now, I don't know. Perhaps uh, the centurion understood some of these signs. Perhaps he saw something else on the day that you know, tipped him off. Whatever the case, clearly his eyes have been opened. Only moments ago, he allowed his men to mock and abuse Jesus and his claim to kingship back at the headquarters. And now, as he stands at the foot of the cross, he erected, you know, or had put there. Mark clearly wants us to know that somehow he glimpsed the truth. And my hope is that you can see that too. In spite of all those who mocked and those who continue to do so, you know, your friends, your colleagues, uh, maybe your family, Jesus really is the Son of God. Jesus really is God's chosen King who bled and died for us and whose rule will one day come in all its fullness, just as the prophets foretold. And as we come to an end, there's one other unexpected convert that day, and that's in the final section. Look at verse 42. When it was already evening, because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went into Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some fine linen, he took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he placed him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Now Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was placed. Now, I want to point out just one thing from this final section. It's in verse 43. Did you notice Mark's description of Joseph of Arimathea? Mark tells us he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Isn't that fascinating? It's really a remarkable thing for Joseph to do. To go up to Pilate, who's just had Jesus killed. To go up to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. A dangerous person to be associated with. Uh, Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Not only that, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the Jewish ruling council, if you look back to chapter 15, verse 1, who put Jesus to death. So he had everything to lose by associating himself with this crucified rebel. Not a great career move, you might say. But why did Joseph do it? Because somehow his whole view of things had had been changed he was looking forward to the kingdom of God and somehow he, he realized that this one, this one who had just died, was, was the one in whom all of his hopes were pinned. He was looking forward to the day when all earthly kingdoms would be destroyed and when God would rule his people directly in a pure and perfect paradise. The kingdom of God is what all Christians look forward to. It's our safe haven, our final home. And what Mark has been telling us throughout this book is that Jesus is our God and King. 
Jesus is the one we've been waiting for who will bring in God's kingdom. And somehow, Joseph of Arimathea seems to get that. Uh, Perhaps he didn't understand that fully, but he's certainly on to something. You see, Jesus' death was not a tragic accident. It was not, not just a mistake that put an end to God's plan to establish his kingdom. It was part of God's plan. When the curtain was torn in two, access to God's kingdom was opened up. Now men and women from all over the world can come into the presence of God, not with fear of punishment, but in faith. They can lay down their arms, submit to Jesus as their rightful king, and enjoy his rule over their lives forever. Like the centurion, you see, Mark is calling us to marvel that this crucified Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And like Joseph of Arimathea, Mark is calling us to look forward to the kingdom of God in which King Jesus will rule forever. All right, so any questions before we pray? I'm going to wrap up in prayer in a sec, but do you have any questions? Just, just two or three, and then we'll, uh, we'll close. Go on, Ben. Yes, he was, yeah, absolutely. Um, so he was speaking Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani is Aramaic. And uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is uh, English. But uh, originally it was, uh, it was Greek. It was Greek. So Mark was written in Greek. Um, and yeah, but Jesus was most likely speaking Aramaic. And that, that quote is from Aram- is, is Aramaic. There are a few times in um, the Gospels where they do that. And I take it as part of saying, you know, um, this is an eyewitness account. This is exactly what he said. Do you know what I mean? This, I heard this with my own ears or whatever. Um, this is exact. And, um, and emphasis, you know, you're actually reading it twice. Um, yeah. Maybe one last thing is it's for all the world to hear. You know, Mark, Mark doesn't give us this account here. But interestingly, the sign above his head was written in multiple languages you know the king of the jews the king of the jews the king of the jews every nation needs to know this and in some ways i wonder if mark's doing that with his translations yeah yeah it's it's sort of as simple as because eloi eloi sounds like elijah i mean eloi eloi means my god my god and elijah means yahweh is god all right uh, or my god is yahweh yeah. So I, I think it's just a matter of they've muddled it up. Um, it, it could be... Um, Elijah is one of the characters in the Old Testament. Very few characters in the Old Testament don't die. But Elijah doesn't die. He, he's, he's taken away by God. And so there is an expectation that Elijah will come back. And um, Jesus tells us that you know John the Baptist has come back and he's the Elijah and so on. So there's, there's this expectation that Elijah will come back and I wonder if they're kind of confused by that as well. They think this is the moment when Elijah of old will, will return. But it's really, I think, yeah, Eloi, Eloi, and Elijah, yeah, or Eliar or whatever it is. Is that a question? No? Just a... Cool. Any other? Mark?
Yeah, great question. So in Luke's gospel, one of the, one of the criminals yeah, defends Jesus, and that's really helpful. I take it he changed his mind. I take it he changed his mind. I mean, in Mark, Mark is short and snappy. Do you know what I mean? He, he doesn't include lots of details. It's only 16 chapters. Luke goes for 24 chapters. It's a lot longer, um, and so includes more details. But I take it in Mark, you've got the, kind of, you've got the centurion, who is the, this soldier who changes his mind. Um, I think in Luke, that's what's happening there. You've got, they, they've, they've started off insulting him, and I think one of them ends up going, because they're hanging there for a few hours, you know. Um, one of the men, since from nine till three, is it? You know. So I take it he does start insulting him, and then he stops. Yeah. Uh, something about w- the way Jesus is behaving persuades this centurion that he's worthy of his worship, you know? And I take it that that's the same thing that happened for the yeah, criminal next to him. All right, we'll stop there. Uh, if you've got any other questions, feel free to put them down on your connection card or ask me at Bible study, Mitch. Uh, let's pray. Gracious Father God, thank you so much for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you loved us so much that you sent him and that he willingly came to take our place, to bear our punishment so that we might go free, so that we might be saved. We know that along with the rest, we are by nature sinful, deserving of your wrath. We mock your kingship as we sin against you. And yet you offer us forgiveness and peace and amnesty. We pray, Father, that you'd help us to trust Jesus and that you'd bring us safely to our heavenly home into his kingdom forever. Amen.